Hi, welcome to Building a Business That Lasts. My name is Jay Owen, and I'm your host. On a quest towards stories, tips, and ideas that will help you grow a business without being stressed out, worn out, and ready to quit. Each week, I'll interview other business owners who have successfully grown businesses of all types for many years. It's my hope that these conversations will help you build a business that lasts. So one of my favorite ways to learn is through audiobooks, and I use audible.com for that. So what I'd like to do is give away a three-month membership to audible.com. I'm going to do that every single month to somebody that's on our email list. So if you're not on our email list already, go to buildingabusinessthatlasts.com, plug in your email address. I promise I won't spam you. We'll send you one email a week announcing the new podcast as they come out give you some information and links about those podcasts, and enter you in a chance to win that three-month membership to audible.com. So head over to our website, buildingabusinessthatlasts.com, plug in your email address, and we will get you entered for that contest. Good luck. On this episode, I interview Todd Neville. He is the vice mayor for the city of St. Augustine, here where I live, and he also is the managing partner at Neville Wanio CPAs. Todd is one of those guys that's involved in just tons of stuff around the city and just constantly helping out a lot of folks. I think you'll find this interview especially interesting if you're curious about hiring and how to manage a team, how to grow a team, and really how to make it through difficult seasons, how to prepare yourself and your company financially to make it through difficult times. So without any further ado, here is that chat with Todd. Todd, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Jay. I look forward to the interview. Yeah. So uh, as those of you who are listening and have heard the podcast before know, the purpose of this podcast is to talk to other business owners who have been around for a while and just kind of get some insight into them and their lives and how they started and, and kind of how they've lasted the test of time because uh, it's it's easy to start things sometimes, but it's hard to uh, keep them going in the long run. Stats always show that. And so uh, I'd just kind of like to get started and kind of hear from you, your story, how you got started, how you ended up where you are now, and that's kind of a broad question, Mm -hmm. but still, just give us a little bit of insight on how you got to where you are business-wise. Well, a little background, my family moved here when I was in high school, moved to St. Augustine, and I have a twin brother and a sister, and my parents still live here in town, and that was back in 1990. And so during the summer times, I would come back to St. Augustine from school. My brother, sister, and I, we all went to different schools. Mm-hmm. And I was the one of the three kids who would come back every summer. And I ended up interning um, with a local CPA firm here in town. And the, the, two, the two partners in that firm were both got big firm account, a big accounting firm experience. And they gave me that advice. When I finished my internship with them, they said, you know, we want you to go get that same sort of experience. We want you to go work for one of the real large firms, learn the tools of the trade, have somebody else train you. And then we'll bring you back to St. Augustine when, when we think you're ready. And as a 22-year-old, it was one of those moments where I thought they didn't want me. I had other friends who had internships and had job offers waiting. And so I I felt a little depressed about it. I thought, man, I could come back to St. Augustine right out of school. But I ended up getting a a job in Chicago. I went to Indiana University, so I was up there in the Midwest and uh, got a job with a firm in Chicago that had 850 CPAs. Wow. In the Chicago office. Wow. So as far as big accounting firm experience goes, 
we, it was exactly what these guys wanted. So, um, to my surprise, two and a half years later, they called me and said, Hey, are you ready to come back to St. Augustine? And so I came back and this was 1999, um, after two and a half years up there. And I joined the firm that I am now the managing partner of. And there have been a couple of iterations of that, but my partner, Fred Wainio and I, he was a a tax manager in the firm when I was an intern. Hmm. Um, so he and I have been working together basically for 21 years. Wow. Um, so your podcast here of uh, longevity definitely applies to this case. So anyway, after working up through the ranks, I became a partner in, in the firm. Um, we changed the name of the firm to Taylor, Wainio and Neville in 2003. And then we spun a portion of the business off uh, in 2011. Um, which was my portion of the business. And now you see the firm that we have now, which is Neville Wainio CPAs. Um, so basically, other than for about a five-month period in 2012, Fred and I have been working together for 21 years and uh, been doing the CPA thing here in St. Augustine for that whole time. That's awesome. And uh, so that's one of the things that I'm trying to do with this podcast is connect with other people who have you know, kind of been through different iterations over time, grown up through something and kind of learned through that. And one of the things I kind of heard from that is, and this seems to be kind of a theme with a lot of people that I talk to, is this idea that you you had other people in your life at that point who said, hey, here's what we need you to do. Go do this. And whether or not you'd classify them as a mentor or not, it's it's kind of in that ballpark of having other people that will speak into your life, basically, and help with that. So how has that affected you over time, just having other people that have helped kind of come alongside you and kind of either counsel you or drive you in the right direction or redirect you at certain points? I'd love to kind of hear your insight on that. I mean, it dead on. I see people who take the risk of starting a business. I think you're one of them, maybe starting a business right out of school. That wasn't me. I really, uh, I needed that mentorship, as, as you said. And it's accounting profession especially, it's almost an apprenticeship type of profession. So going through uh, the steps with a mentor, um, and I consider my partner, um, even though I'm the managing partner now, my partner uh, being mentored by him, being mentored by uh, our old partner, uh, Dale Taylor, who's now retired. And I absolutely owe so much to those guys who took me through that, who invested in me early on, who saw, hey, here's a 22-year-old kid that doesn't really know anything other than his education. And we're going to take the time to train him up through um, everything from the professional aspect of the business to owning a business to uh, being a, a, a good citizen in the community. Um, all of those values were instilled through those mentorship, those mentor relationships. Sure. And I think there are three different areas where I, I had mentors in my life. Family, first, there's no better mentor than your, than your dad and, sure. and your mom. And they are still, I talk to them every single day. I, they live in St. Augustine Beach. I live downtown. So, uh, we see each other at least weekly, if not more. And then my professional mentors would be Dale Taylor and Fred Wainio, those guys. And then the, the civic mentors, which were outside of that realm, but that I worked with, which were, were guys like Brian Wilson and Bill Proctor and, and people like that, that I meant through Rotary and, and mutual clients and things like that. I think all of those would be examples of that mentor. And, and you take 
things from each of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, you know, when I grew up, it was it was interesting because I started super young. I actually started the business when I was still in high school, mm-hmm. and and it kind of grew out of that. But it was more of a hobby than anything when I started, mm-hmm. and it got to a point where I wasn't sure it was going to last. I started working for my uncle, who's actually in the insurance industry, got my license, worked with him for six months. And I always say that that six months was probably the best business education that I ever had. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think there's so many things that we can learn through traditional education, things, especially something like an accountant, you have to. But, but then there's like the things that you can't necessarily learn without having to walk through them and have somebody else help walk you through them. Uh, You kind of hit on kind of civic responsibility and community. I know that's one of the things that you're heavily involved with. Uh, that's actually how Todd and I met originally. Well, to some extent, we kind of knew of each other. But then St. Augustine, um, not that long ago now, although you wouldn't know it from looking at the city because it's been so resilient, uh, was hit with a hurricane, Hurricane Matthew. And um, Todd was heavily involved on the city side, orchestrating all kinds of recovery efforts. And I'm, I'm a little farther north in the county and was doing trying to do a lot volunteer-wise on, on the other side of things. And we kind of collided paths and, and were able to work together through some of that. So I'd love to kind of hear kind of how you got into that civic and community atmosphere because you you kind of have this split role now of having to run a business but also having the opportunity to be involved in the city in a very significant way. And I'd love to hear kind of how you balance those things and, um, and, and even how you got into them. You know, the role in the city, I, I mean, I remember a past mayor here in St. Augustine, Greg Baker. Uh, I have known him for for 20-something years. And it was probably almost 20 years ago that uh, he and I were talking about this, and he made the comment, you know, being on the city commission, being the mayor, is truly public service. Mm. And where that conversation came from was there was talk of the time of how much should a city commissioner get paid? And we are both of the, we were both talking about the the fact that it needs to be public service because you want people in that role that are there to improve our community versus right. make it a job for themselves. And that that aspect of it, the, the public service aspect, um, really came to light when my wife and I had our first child. Mm. And at the time, I was uh, I always had the rule that I would never serve on more than three boards at one time. And the reason that I had that rule is because when I do something, I want to do it well. And if I stretch myself too thin, I'm not going to be able to do it. So one of the things uh, when we had our, our first son and our only son was my wife said, you know, you're investing all this time in the community. Are we having the most impact we can have with your time? And when we really looked at it, we said, you know what? There is a way that we can have more impact with the same amount of investment. And so what I did was I pulled off some of the boards that I was on, which I was on a a bank board. And that's one that, okay, it's professionally fulfilling, but as far as giving back to the community, doesn't really do a whole lot. And I pulled off of a national running club board. I was the, I want to say I was treasurer of the Roadrunners Club of America at the time. So not local community impact. And the reason I did that was I, I, I reached out to another past mayor, Tracy Upchurch, before yeah. I, I ran. And I said, you know, what is the time commitment? What is the impact on your family when you do this? And one of the things he told me, he said, hey, from a time perspective, think of it as serving on two boards. He said, you serve on a hospital board, you serve on a bank board, you serve on this running club board. C- City commission is basically two of these boards at any one time. So I said, okay, well, if I'm going to keep my rule of three boards, I resigned from two of the boards so I could run. And that's one of the ways that that we came up with the balance. And it's also one of the ways that one of the key decision 
points in, do we want to run for city commission and have an impact on this community? And it has been the, the impact, having an impact on your community the way that we have is absolutely rewarding. And I, I, yeah. want, I want to trade it for anything. But uh, going back, tying it into the mentorship problem question, my old partner, Dale Taylor, used to always talk about being a good citizen. Mm. Um, and he talked about that was one of the things that he wanted with his kids. And it was something that I said, OK, that's something that going forward in my professional career, I want to make sure that that is something that I'm doing myself. And you look at the different things, everything from take stock in children. Um, we, we started a running camp for, for middle school, high school kids, um, heavily involved in coaching kids, pro bono adjunct professor at Flagler College, just those things, all these things that how can, how can we have an impact on our community and make our community better? Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's interesting because what I'm hearing in that is is really kind of that initial heart and desire to be involved in the community and not just to use it for some benefit for business. My uncle always told me in sales, he said, if you really want to sell somebody, just help them. Like be desi- like desire mm-hmm. to help them, not to sell them, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I kind of think of that the same way. I don't know if you do, but it's kind of this idea of like, you can be involved in something like Rotary, for example, and you could be there for your own benefit or you could be there for the true benefit of the organization and the organizations that it helps and ultimately sometimes the results are the same always for the most part being involved in large organizations builds your own network you know it, it builds the number of people that you know and people tend to like to work with people they know like and trust so there's value to that but at the same time i think having the heart in the right place often results in a better long-term result i could not agree with that more and one of the things that when I'm mentoring our younger accountants or younger civic minded people, one of the things I always tell them is never ask to be on a board. Yeah. Never ask to do something. Just go start helping out. And I, and I tell them this all the time. If you help out, if you get involved and just try to make a difference, you will be recognized. People will notice it. And all of a sudden you'll get that request to, Hey, let's like, for example, my first civic thing, and it, this sounds silly, was I was president of Ancient City Roadrunners here in town. And it was one of those things. I went to the first monthly meeting, just started showing up, would show up for races help. And next thing I know, someone says, you know, we need some younger blood as president. Let's make him president. <laughs> well, next thing you know, people recognized what I was doing there and the community that I was building and a guy named Brian Wilson, who owns Jack Wilson Chevrolet here in town, he reaches out to me and he's like, you know what? I've watched what you've been doing. I'd really like to see you serve on the Visitors and Convention Bureau board. And next thing you know, it just snowballs because people see you involved. They, Like you said, they get to know you. They get to trust you. They get to see your work ethic. And you don't even need to to go and and proactively say, hey, I want to be on this board. So it's something I really push people to do. Just go get involved yourself. Don't, don't don't ask for a position. Yeah, and one of the things that I'm kind of hearing through that uh, that I think is a big key point that a lot of people overlook when it comes to the longevity of a business is just this idea of patience. A lot of my staff now are millennials. It didn't used to be that way, but they are now. And a lot of people say that millennials in general are lazy or unproductive, all these kind of things. I don't actually believe that at all because I have a team of people that are not like that. Like mm-hmm. They're hardworking and, and everything else. But... If y'all listen to this, sorry, but it's true. Uh, <laughs> millennials sometimes can tend to be impatient, but I think a lot of it is the product of 
like the society that we've created. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was a kid, like if you wanted to, this is where I start to feel old all of a sudden. When I was a kid, you know, when I wanted to watch a particular cartoon that came on Saturday morning at nine o'clock, like you had to wake up and turn on the TV at nine o'clock on Saturday if you wanted to watch that show. Mm-hmm. And when it was done, you had to wait till the next Saturday to watch the next mm-hmm. episode. My kids barely even understand. Like if they're watching live TV, they're like, let's read, let's, let's, let's watch the next one. And they're like, no, no, there is no ne- next one. That, that was That's it. That's it. You yeah. know? And you have to wait till next week. It, it doesn't even make sense to them. See, and, and to me, I'm with you on that in, in that I don't think it's a millennial thing. Yeah. I, I think it's a 22 to 29 year old thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I say that because when I started work, so I graduated college in 1997, so I'm part of Generation X. And the same things were said about us. Yeah, sure. And it has nothing to do with Generation X or Millennial. Right. It has, you are 22 years old, you're fresh out of college or high school or whatever. And it takes time to understand that perseverance and delay of gratification is something, if you want to be successful, that you have to have. And, uh, it, it, it's something that my parents instilled in me. And so the, the firm I worked for up in Chicago, we had a start class of 37 people. So 37, 22 to 25 wow. year olds right out of college, all going to be sitting for their CPA exams. And I got tagged by the partners. All the partners started calling me old school. And it was because of that exact thing. All these other new hires that I was around, they wanted it now. They wanted, oh, you know what? I'm going to go to this other firm because somebody offered me $5,000. And big picture, if you took a step back, making the investment in that specific location and saying, okay, there's a long-term path here. If I pay my dues here, if I grind it out here, the long-term result is way better than that short-term $5,000 raise or signing bonus or whatever. And um, so I don't think it's necessarily a millennial versus a Gen X thing. I think it's, yeah. it's being young. And and the one other thing is uh, on that topic is I was a collegiate cyclist. I rode for Indiana University. And one of the things that I've done to give back as an alum is I host, being in, here in Florida, I host our college bike team's winter training trip every year. So my wife and I, and, and I started it before I was married. I'll have these college kids come down and do their winter training. And, and one of the funny stories is when, when my wife and I first met and we first got married, she was very worried about, Hey, we're having 11, 18 to 22 year olds come live with us. And she's like, well, do we need insurance because they're going to go out drinking or they're going to be partying? And I was like, no, I don't, I said, I don't think you understand. These are goal driven kids who are coming here for one purpose, and that is to improve themselves as cyclists. And after the first year, she just fell in love with it. And all of a sudden, you see a group of kids like that that are all millennials, and their focus and their how driven they are toward a goal. And you see it go across all the different aspects of their lives. It's not only cycling, but you talk to one of them, oh, I'm a biomed major. And talk through what their goals are in life and what they're walking through, what internship they have lined up, what they're doing with their graduate school, what, whatever it is. And so it's not a millennial thing. I mean, there are plenty of very driven 
22-year-olds yeah. out there. And I, I believe in the next generation big time. Yeah, I totally do too, which is good because there's a lot of next generation coming up and, and, and we need them, you know, to, to be patient and willing to put those hours in it. The cycling kind of reminded me of, you know, the, the fitness side of your life. Mm-hmm. Like you've been heavily involved in doing marathons, even an Ironman, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of cycling as a result of all that too. And my wife did a half Ironman and just watching her train for that. You know, you, you watch people like that, or even my wife's dad, he's 72 years old and he's training for one right now. And, and he does, he does a triathlon like every other weekend. And, and you look at that and you think, you, you don't just do it. Like you yeah. don't just, uh, you know, I'm not going to go out and run a two, two and a half hour marathon tomorrow, right? Yeah. Like maybe eventually I could. Yeah. A lot of training and, and, and diet and focus and practice. But it's the same thing, like preparing for a race like that. Is no different than running a business long term. And, and, and really it's the same sort of thing. And this is why I don't think it's a millennial thing that when I, when I was doing that and I was racing at a very high level, I had so many people come tell me, Hey, I want to run a marathon. Will you write up a training plan for me? Okay. Well, let's talk about where you are fitness wise, what your history of running is in the back in the past. And so many times it's, you've been running for three weeks and you want to run a marathon. Let, let's get you running 5Ks right. and then 10Ks and then half marathons. And let's talk about a marathon three or four years from now. And so many people did not want to make that long-term investment. They want, I want to run a marathon this summer. And I would tell them, I'm like, listen, I don't think it, from a health perspective, it's good for you. I want to see you commit to this so this becomes a lifestyle. So you're more healthy versus a, a bucket list item. And, um, even myself, I mean, mo- most people do anywhere from 12 to 24 week marathon training programs. I usually would circle a marathon three years out. Mm. And because when you make it that long term and make everything over those three years toward one goal at the end, yeah, people say, okay, you're putting all your eggs in one basket, but the results are always going to be 10 times better. So I'm interested to hear you kind of compare you know, something like that where you're setting this long-term, it's just a perfect, perfect analogy to business. You're setting this long-term three-year goal of where you want to go. I want to run a marathon and I want to run a marathon in X amount of time. It's mm-hmm. very specific. It's very measurable. And with the right training, it's attainable. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious how that relates to kind of how you see your business and mm-hmm. how you've seen it over time and how you, you know, along with your team kind of set those goals and what kind of systems you put in place in order to make sure that you're heading towards them? Like, how do you track those things over time? Okay, there's two things that I really think are analogous, and you hit on one of them, which is you have something measurable. Okay, so let's say it's three years from now you're going to run that marathon. Well, you're going to have markers along there that you're going to set as, as intermediate goals to say, are we going in the right direction? And it might be a time in a 5K. It might be what your weight is. It might be miles in a week. It could be all types of different measurable goals. And I, I think being measurable is, is a big key in business in knowing what you want as a desired outcome. And then the second thing is understanding that long-term goal is a trajectory and not a straight line. Mm. They're two different things. You're going to have setbacks along the way. You're going to have a bad run. You're going to have a bad week. You might get hurt. You might go on vacation and gain five pounds. I mean, you're going to have setbacks along the way. And that applies to business too. I mean, I'll give you an example. 
the biggest setback I've ever had in my business was this storm. Yeah. We were out of our office for three straight months. Wow. And we did everything we could during that time to maintain client contact, to, to um, meet deadlines, to do all those things that we've always historically done. But, I mean, we did not hit the mark. We absolutely didn't. And, and when you take 11 employees out of their normal comfort zone. And we were working out of our dining room. We were working at coffee shops. We were working out of our lawyer's conference room for six hour days instead of eight hour days. And we absolutely did not hit the mark with some of our clients. We missed some deadlines. We lost some clients. I mean, but we knew that, okay, this is a bump. This is not something that we're throwing the the towel in. And um, as long as you have that understanding and know how to correct from it and see where the measurables are, um, you can sustain long-term. Yeah, and I, I love that just transparency, I think, because there's pressure in our culture to just always appear like we've got it together, right? Like mm-hmm. Facebook creates this mentality of the, what I would say the highlight role versus the behind the scenes. You know, everybody sees the highlight role. Nobody necessarily sees behind the scenes. And I think it's really... It's just good for peop- other people, I think, sometimes to hear other business owners say, hey... Sometimes we mess it up. Well, you know, know, Jay, why I don't feel bad about saying that is because we had the things in place to survive. Okay. So we had a business that we had cash reserves. We had an open line of credit. We had um, uh, our, our balance sheet in a position that we could weather something like that where, okay, we, I mean, for three months, we build at 26% year over year. So, I mean, when you see a 74% decrease wow. in your revenue for three months, most businesses can't sustain that. But since we did have those open lines of credit, is an open line of credit, since we did have a good balance sheet, we were able to go out and get a small business loan. We were able to use, utilize the line of credit. We were able to utilize our cash reserves, um, to be able to weather that. And now, that got us through the short term. Now we're going through. We staffed up. We went from seven employees to 11 employees to catch up on the backlog of work. And what it's going to do is it's, it's going to springboard us into a stronger, better business. So, um, But like I said, you have to look at the long-term trajectory and know that you're going to have those hiccups along the way when, when you're throwing a curveball like having your entire office flooded out. I mean, it, there's not much we can do about that. That was an uncontrollable, but we had the things in place to be able to mitigate that uncontrollable. Well, it's interesting because I just got to interview uh, Sherry Davidson from Davidson mm-hmm. Realty recently. And, you know, they've been in business for 28 years. Mm-hmm. And you think about real estate in general, it's one of those businesses where it is hot or it is cold. Mm-hmm. And, to, and just to make it through the recession, you know, uh, that happened that really hit real estate hard not that long ago, preparing for the worst case scenario and being ready is... It's funny because it's one of the things we tell, our, I, I tell my clients all the time, I'm, I tell them, go get a line of credit. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Why do, we don't need a line of credit. We have plenty of cash in the bank. And I said, that's exactly why you need a line of credit. Because when you don't have plenty of cash in the bank, the bank's not going to give it to you. Right. So you want to go get it. And and it's one of those things, like you just said, you're preparing for the unknown. You're preparing for those those times that you have no idea it's coming. I mean, we had no idea a hurricane was coming. Right. And um, so I, I think it's the preparation is why I'm not embarrassed about it. If we weren't prepared, I mean, we wouldn't be in business that's right true. now. If, that's right. If we weren't prepared. So. And, and ultimately, that kind of lends itself to this conversation. Like, that's that's the whole point of this is 
you know, building a business that lasts, you have to be prepared to get through things like that. Mm -hmm. So you're a numbers guy, CPA, account, like you, you know those kind of things, which for a lot of people is a difficulty when they're starting a business. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are, are technicians in their own fields and they, or maybe they're entrepreneurs, but a lot of time entrepreneurs aren't strong with, you know, detailed accounting, you know, and I certainly have had my weaknesses over the years. So I'd love to just talk some tactical tips for people mm -hmm. to kind of be aware of. One of the things I always say is that cash flow is one of the things that gets people in the most trouble with business. Mm -hmm. I have this analogy that I joke about. It's kind of like juggling money. There's the pipeline, there's receivables, and there's actual cash. Mm -hmm. And you have to keep all of those balls moving at yep. the same time. Otherwise, things fall apart. So if you're thinking about other business owners and talking into, maybe it's a new business owner, maybe it's somebody that's been around for a while, but they're starting to grow and not sure how to manage some things. What are some real tactical tips somebody can take when it comes to their numbers uh, and their books that might be helpful for someone listening? One, and this sounds really simple, okay, and it's really granular, is a new business should, and I tell people this all the time, invest in someone to help you. And, and I'm talking about go get an administrative assistant. And I know you're hiring for yeah. one right now because all of those things to keep the business running. Do I, as the CPA, want to be the one chasing the invoices down? And when you can pay somebody to help you, do I want to be the one scheduling my appointments? Do I want to be the ones binding stuff together? And I see CPAs even in our own firm make the mistake all the time. And I'll come in on a Saturday. They're in here on a Saturday putting a tax return together. What are you doing? That's why we hire other people to do those pieces for you. And I don't care if it's a window washing business, if it's a graphic design business. Get that good administrative assistant to take that stuff off your plate because you want to be billable. Yeah. And, and that, that's one that I learned early on. The second is be honest with yourself when it's time to adjust. Um, so often people wait and they're not honest with themselves of, Hey, this person's not working out or this person's not a good fit or, Hey, we need to trim something from our budget and they wait until it's too late. Yeah. And that's very hard. Here's the story I'll tell people all the time. It's very hard because you say, man, if I cut this person, I'm affecting their livelihood. I'm affecting, are they going to make their mortgage? Are they going to make their car payment? But when you look overall, you have to take the big picture look of if I don't cut that person, I'm going to affect all 11 employees. And we've got 11 employees who all have families who are all then going to have their job at risk. So taking that big picture approach and doing it when you know versus always waiting and dragging your feet, the worst thing you can do is drag your feet and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. We've only got a few minutes left, so I'd like to hit on kind of what we're talking about there a little more, which is kind of people, hiring, firing, culture, that whole kind mm -hmm. of hemisphere. One of the things that I think is interesting about having to get to that point where you let somebody go is that if they're the not, not the right fit for the role for the, for the company, then it's not good for them either. No. And it's better for them to be somewhere else where they are a good fit because mm -hmm. everybody has unique talents, gifts, and abilities that belong somewhere. But if mm -hmm. that seat doesn't exist, we can't always invent that for that person. Mm -hmm. So I always think that bringing people in is something I do very carefully and I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts about when you're bringing in new team members. I, I make the analogy that it's kind of like adding an ingredient to a soup. And once you put that ingredient in, it changes the whole flavor of the pot. Yep. And so I'd love to hear kind of like how you make those decisions when you're hiring to go, hey, this is the right person to put on the team. Yeah. You know, and 
It's funny because we went through some bumps last year because a long-term partner of ours. So until April of last year, we had three partners. Mm -hmm. And the third partner, Fred and I had worked together for 20 years. The third partner I had hired as a staff accountant in 2002. Mm -hmm. Well, after 10 years, we made him a partner. And when he decided he was not happy in the CPA world, he went to work with one of our clients as their CFO and great relationship, good departure. Everything was fine. But filling that role Mm. became very difficult and and we're at a good place now. But we went through a couple hires that were not the right fit. And where I made the mistake was... I, I went for the resume of, holy cow, this person has a CPA, Boston University MBA. All the tangibles were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, this person's great. But then culturally, it was it was not the right fit. Yeah. And so I, I think the balance between the technical skill, the desire of the individual, and then the cultural fit. I think all three of those need to be weighed. And there are so many times that every business owner goes through this where they're like, I just need a warm body in the seat. Sure. And, and if you're going to, if a business owner is going to go that route, I always tell them, make sure that that person understands this is temporary. Right. You know, this is a seasonal position or this is temporary or hire them as a contract laborer instead of a full-time employee. Because the, the only people you want on the team, like actually on the team, are people who fit in culturally. And for, for us, that's integrity, family driven, and being a team member. Those three things, we want to see those three things. And, uh, so one of the things I really try to do when I'm interviewing is to see if there's any sense of entitlement. If you have a sense of entitlement, I don't want you anywhere yep. near our firm. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, I think you and I probably could talk all day and everybody would eventually not want to hear us anymore. <laughs> so uh, what I always like to try and finish with is any resources that you personally use to help kind of keep yourself ahead of the curve. Maybe it's particular books that you read or audio books or podcasts or blogs. How do you kind of keep yourself moving forward, both in like a not just the technical sense mm-hmm. of like what's happening in your industry, but you as a leader, what are you doing for yourself to keep yourself educated and, and constantly growing? To me, the biggest thing you can do is listen. And I do that and and I'm really lucky in the people that I have around me. And, and I'll share a couple. So for example, every Friday morning, I have a group of business owners. There's 11 of us mm-hmm. who are all business owners and we have breakfast together. We we ate breakfast this morning at Blue Hen and there's 11 of us, but like this morning there were six of us that showed up. Every one of them has these same sort of stories that you and I are talking about. It's how do you find that next person? You know, my admin assistant's not working out. Where do I find the next one? Hey, I, I need a line of credit. Who should I talk to in town? And listen to, uh, listening to the stories of those other business owners is where I probably learn more than anything. And then the second piece is same sort of thing on the hospital board. So on that hospital board, you have, I think I'm the youngest member on the hospital board. So there's some older members who have years and years and years of business experience across the board of people who started their own business and built them or executive vice president of IBM, things like that. So you you see the, the full range and seeing how large organizations have been successful is something that you can scale down to a small business and take a lot of those same policies and principles and uh, apply them to the small. 
Awesome. I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about being able to do this podcast. I figure if nobody ever even listens to it, at least uh, I'm getting a lot out of the interviews. <laughs> exactly. So it's uh, it's been it's been really awesome already. Really appreciate your time today, and I hope that those listening get a lot out of it. I'm going to continue kind of carrying down this path. So if you know of other folks that you know have been in business for a while and, and would like to kind of share their knowledge with others, I'd love to get them on the podcast. If you're out there, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. And uh, Todd, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. This interview with Todd was kind of interesting for me because my 12-year-old came along with me for the day and he was sitting in the room and, and, you know, a couple of things that we talked about with regards to being disciplined and having kind of structure and and processes and and things that that we do on a regular basis in life in order to keep a business growing. When I went home uh, later in that day, my son said to me, he's like, Dad, I'm going to make some uh, checklists, a morning checklist, and that's what I'm going to do when I wake up. So I kind of have a process that I follow. So it was neat just having him along for this interview and how much just he picked up off of just sitting through it. And I hope that you've also picked up a few things listening to this conversation with Todd. If you want to find out a little bit more about him and his business, you can find him online at nbwcpas.com. That's nbwcpas.com. This podcast is sponsored by Design Extensions. Design Extensions is a full-service digital marketing agency that provides marketing strategy, website, and design services that help others grow their business. If you're looking for help in achieving your marketing goals, growing your business, improving your website, or upgrading your image, make sure to check out Design Extensions at designextensions.com. I hope this episode has given you some ideas or inspiration that will help you grow your business. If you found it helpful and you know somebody else who might benefit from it as well, I would greatly appreciate it if you would take the time to share this with them, maybe on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, or even shoot an email over to a friend uh, with a link to this podcast in it. And if you haven't already, make sure you sign up for our email list at buildingabusinessthatlasts.com.